yesterday was my undergraduate classes reunion. Um, when I got that information in the mail, I kind of like chuckled. I'm like, no, like there's no way. Yeah, yeah, it, it had been that long since I had finished undergrad. So nevertheless, it's true. Yet another reason to find out I'm an old man. And um, when we were walking campus yesterday, it was funny. I was telling a few people for worship. We kept getting these like really weird looks from undergraduate students. And I realized I remember the look on their face because I used to have that look on my face when I saw people walking around campus with their kids thinking, who are these old people? And why are there a bunch of kids on campus? So I became that guy yesterday. And then the, the kind of the, the, the exclamation mark on as I ran into one of my favorite and former professors. And he asked me, he said, now remind me, are, you're 40 now, right? And I was like, wow, like I have really apparently aged in the last few years that you now think that I'm 40. No offense that you're 40. I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying I'm not 40. So, um, <laughs> so I, it got me thinking as I got this anniversary thing in, where was I 10 years ago at this point? Um, I was finishing or starting my senior year at Campbell. 11 years ago, starting my senior year at Campbell. I had just started at First Baptist Church of Clayton, uh, where I would serve for six and a half years. Uh, I had met at that time the woman who had then become my wife, but also at that time I was looking at what was next for me. Uh, where was I going to continue my theological education? And my dream always was uh, to go to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Not only to study under some of the great thinkers of the day, but it's California and it's Pasadena, California. Um, and so I started the application out there and started to dig deeper into this relationship that I was in with Jennifer at the time and things at First Baptist Church were really taking off. And so I started to realize that maybe Fuller wasn't the best decision. And so I looked at my second choice. My second dream was always to go to Truett Theological Seminary, which is in Waco, Texas, at Baylor University. And then I thought to myself, well, what's four and a half hours on a plane versus six hours on a plane? So then I looked 45 minutes up the road. You know how I feel about Duke University, and they have one of the best theological schools in the country. And so I applied, and I got in. And then I got the financial aid information. <laughs> and they said, well, we can offer you $5,000 scholarship a year. That's 5000 off 20000 a year. And so I started to really weigh out the odds. I could go to Duke and probably end with about sixty dollars to $75,000 worth of debt, where you would then in ministry go into making twenty-five, dollars $30,000 a year. You can do the math on how long that takes to pay it off. Or Campbell Divinity School was offering me a full ride at the time. So I remember that moment, that point of transition, where I felt God calling me to stay, to stay exactly where I was, to stay not only in the school, but to stay in the relationship I was in, and to stay in the ministry setting I was in at First Baptist Church, and lo and behold, the things that would begin to happen in the years to come afterwards. That's kind of the atmosphere I want us to understand as we enter into our text this morning. So take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now if you're joining us or have been new to coming, we've been taking the year to journey throughout all the scriptures. And so finally we finished the Gospels last week and this week we're going to find ourselves in the book of Acts next week. And that's exactly where we find the disciples. A place of transition. You see, Jesus died, resurrected and then after spending you know, some time with them, ascended and then kind of left them there. And that's how the disciples are kind of standing there. They're standing there wondering what's next. Because if we think about like the ultimate story of God living among us, none of us would pick for Jesus to leave, right? That 
doesn't actually make any sense. Why would Jesus leave us? He, he overcame death and, and all sorts of things and, and now is back with us. Why would he then leave us? And so the disciples are there wondering this very question and Jesus ascends and they don't know what's next. And so it's, the scripture tells us that God sends a messenger to remind them of all the things that Jesus had called them to. I love uh, one author put it this way. The point of ascension is perspective. Rising to the clouds gives us a broader perspective of our lives and the planet. In a sense, Jesus is saying, the mission isn't up here. The mission and vision I've called you to is here. And so the book of Acts is a very unique book. It, you can't describe it as a gospel. And it's, it's not like the letters you see in the New Testament. It's, it's kind of a theological history, if you will. You see, Acts was written by Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke. And so for many years, they say that, that it was just one big work, one big work, uh, going from the uh, Gospel of Luke into the book of Acts was just one big work. It was a story of what came next for the church. And so we learn what happens with the church. The church begins to develop this crazy conversion experience happens where this man who was persecuting the church all of a sudden comes to faith in Christ. He then is commissioned by God to do this amazing ministry to the Gentile nations. But it's all left with this amazing first few chapters of how they begin to live out their faith together. So let's take a look at the scripture. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonders and signs being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. My little girls love books. In fact, Jennifer has to keep a tub of books in the car because they always want to read books. Their, their playroom, I call it the library because there's just like an enormous amount of books there. They go to the library every other week. They pick up new books and bring them home. So they love books. And a couple of months ago, somebody gave some books to us. And inside this book of uh, books, this box of books, was the Where's Waldo books. You remember these books? So Where's Waldo is uh, this series of picture books where there's this little guy with glasses, just like you see up here, the striped shirt, the cane, and the hat. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to find Waldo in these crazy scenes that are happening. And it starts really easy, like on my level, and then gets like progressively uh, harder and harder as you go. You know, sometimes when we read a passage of scripture, it, it's like, where's Waldo? Sometimes it's easy for us to pick out and understand things in the text. And sometimes it's difficult and, and we have to look at it again and again and again. So what I want us to do, and this sounds really weird, is I want to read this passage again. And this time as you're listening to it, I want you to, to think deeply and pay attention to what you hear and see happening within the text. So it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who's in need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. In the second reading of this text, what are some things that stuck out to you? And that's not a rhetorical question. What are some things that stuck out to you from the text? Every day, every day, every day. Yeah, every day, daily. Yeah. 
the idea of community, that they have a us together with a common sense or purpose or just commonality between everybody. Yeah. yeah. Other things stuck out to you? Themes? Activities? What are some things that stuck out to you? Eating, yeah. <laughs> Me too. I'm really hungry now. The giving away of everything. Yeah, the giving away yeah, of stuff, yeah. But they didn't need anything. Mm. They all gave what they needed and they had what they needed. Yeah. Anybody else? They prospered the problem. Mm. Yeah. There was an expectation that something was happening and they wanted to see it. Yeah. They wanted to be a part of this thing that's happening, you know. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They wouldn't be a part of it. See, what I need to do is to start reading passages together at the beginning of the week, and we all, like, come up with these ideas for a great sermon. So let me change everything moving forward. I want you to, re- just a second, reflect. Just quietly reflect. What does this text do inside of you? How does it challenge you? How does this text excite you? How does it make you dream of a better way of being the church together? There's a lot to unpack here. And, and some of the things you've mentioned are things that stuck out to me. Um, one of the things that sticks out to me is their, to, their tenacious cohesiveness. What I mean by that is, did you catch it in text? Over and over again, you have these consistent pronouns, they, everyone, them, all. There's never me, him, her, or some. It's a constant unified pronoun of they, everyone, them, all. And so Luke is telling us, he's showing us that there's this idea of their together and common. Everyone, not just small pockets of people, but everyone is doing all these things they're doing. And I think one of the things that we're learning from the text is that this church had genuine community together. And it was an essential piece of their lives. They wanted to live life well together. Did you know what the the biblical word is for church? Because we just talk about church, church, church all the time. The the Greek word used in the Bible always for church when it refers to that is the word ekklesia. Do you know what that means? We translate it church, but it means community. It means fellowship. So the church is a gathering of people who are being community together. We're we're gathered on this unified idea of Jesus Christ. We live life well together. They were a genuine community, not part of the time, not done just on Sundays, not done occasionally when it fit into their schedule. Luke paints the image that they did all of this together. So what does genuine community look like? Pew Research Center has been providing um, helpful information and studies on different areas and facts and trends and things like that for, for over 30 years now. In August, they released a study on American church trends um, and how people choose a new church. And the, the study found something very fascinating. It said that nearly half of Americans have looked for a congregation at some point in their life, multiple times for many. And it says that there's a lot of numbers in there, but the, one of the major things that stuck out to me is said that 79% of people looking for a new congregation said the determining factor was how they felt welcome when they came into this community. Now, 
they did say that the worship style and the preaching matters as well. But overwhelmingly, how a person felt a sense of belonging is what mattered the most. So in nearly 2,000 years of the church's existence, the common thing that people are always looking for, the common thing that will make or break a church community is not on the programs and ministries and flashiness of all the things we do. It's how people feel within that community. So what does genuine community look like? I think that's a very interesting thing to consider. You know, Mosaic has always, in, in, in our six years of existence, we've always wanted to center around this idea of genuine community together. And what I have found in the last year is I've learned that genuine community is really, really tough. This last year was a very painful year for me as a minister. We saw the departures of, of, of families like the Lanzolas and the Gallagher's and several others that were relocating out of the area. But we also lost a lot of people this last year. In fact, we lost 35 individuals from this community this last year. Some of those folks had conflicts with other members within this community that went unresolved and chose not to resolve them and worked away and walked away from the challenging process of reconciliation. Some folks voiced that they were looking for bigger churches so they could attend, not serve, but just go and enjoy the programs there. I don't want to uh, think that I'm placing the blame on individuals or mosaic, but I'm saying one of the overarching points of this narrative is that living life well together is complicated. It's not easy. And for all those who had unresolved conflict, I asked them to stay and resolve it. For those who claimed they were leaving to go to a bigger church for programs, I asked them to consider to stay and help us build the very things that they were feeling God was helping them dream for. And ultimately, not a single person I asked to stay actually stayed. And as a result of each departure, each time someone left, for me as a pastor, it's a, it's a ripping away at my soul. I love this community. I believe in what we're doing here. I care deeply for, for each of you. You are a beloved community to me. And so I probably did something that was not the healthiest thing. I went to Facebook to rant about it a little bit. And uh, trust me, I know it's not the healthiest way to express your thoughts, but apparently what I said really resonated. Because the post that I made connected with several thousand people, including ministers who voiced their concern for these very things. And if you didn't catch it, this is what I said. We live in a very challenging time in the church's history where we treat the church like it's a product of commodity. Frankly, I'm tired of the consumerism of the church. It's exhausting, it's disheartening, and it's disgusting. The church was not designed for us to reflect our shopping habits, looking for the best deals and programs, only to change our membership on a whim. The church was not designed to be a high school romance that lives on the emotional highs and conditional expectations, only to break up when it gets tough and real. The church was not designed to be a big box store that moves into a town looking for new consumers and sucking members away from existing congregations. The church was not designed to be a one-sided relationship where members pay for services and benefits. May we remember that the church is the body of Christ. When this theology is put into practice, it utterly annihilates the selfishness and self-centeredness and egotistical relationship we have with the church. When this theology is put into practice, the church can become a place of reconciliation and selflessness and service and compassion and safety and belonging and a place to desire to be. 
would consider leaving one church for another. Consider that you're not just leaving people, but you are leaving people who've invested in your children. They've invested in you. They've invested in your journey. There are people who value you, not as a membership number, but value you as an individual. When you consider leaving for a church and leaving, check your motives in your heart and your soul. You shouldn't make this decision as easy and immaturely. And if there's conflict, resolve it. If there's hurt, mend it. If there's discord, unify it. If there's selfishness, pour on compassionate selflessness. If there's frustration, communicate it. If you want programs, help build them. If you want to be fed, realize it's your responsibility too. If there's a need for grace and mercy, maybe it's time to stop expecting others to pour that on yourself and start pouring that from others. May we be the body of a compassionate, merciful, peaceful, hopeful, and loving God. And I own the fact that maybe making a Facebook rant can accomplish what you want at times. In fact, there's a great meme somebody had. It was like 99% um, of people unchanged by Facebook rant. <laughs> and it was like 1%, like you're just more angry from it. <laughs> Yet I stand by these words that I said. And I stand by them because I care deeply for you. I care deeply for this community of people. I care deeply for the way that we as Christians interact with the church. And I think my role as a pastor is to not always pat you on the back and to tell you everything's okay and nothing should change in our life, but it's to gently nudge you and, and even me at times to push past the status quo, to be present in God's grace, to change our way of thinking and living at times. And so I stand by my words. And while we should never try to duplicate what we see in the early church, what I was trying to personify, what I hope you're trying to see, is that genuine community matters for the church. And it's something that takes time. It's something that takes effort. It's something that takes this momentous building within us to create something like this. It's not going to look the same. It's not going to feel the same. But what we see are pure and, and, and innocent expressions of what it means to follow Jesus in this moment. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made some powerful quotes, and one of the things he talks about is uh, this idea of creating beloved community. And he writes this. He says, love is creative and redemptive. Love builds up and unites. Hate tears down and destroys. The aftermath of fight with fire, the method which uh, suggests is bitterness and chaos. The aftermath of love method is reconciliation, a creation of a beloved beloved community. Physical force can repress, restrain, and coerce and destroy, but it cannot create and organize anything permanent. Only love can do that. Yes, love, which means understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill, even for our enemies. This is the solution to the race problem. And when we really take these words in, when we really observe the interaction of genuine community in this early church, it should stir something deep within us. It should stir up some uneasiness. And uneasiness should lead to rethinking, and rethinking should lead to action, and action should lead to an invitation to others. 
So still, I ask the question, what does genuine community look like? And what we see within this text are some simple things. They broke bread together and they ate together. They spent time together. We get this idea of togetherness in all that they're doing. You see, we live in the hubbub of the busyness of life that we compartmentalize community to something that we can put into a defined time that we can go to and leave. But what we see within this community is this togetherness all the time of living life well together. So I want us to imagine what would it look like if we broke bread together? Not when leadership puts it on the calendar and we have to come for something, but what would it look like if we did that every single day and every single week? What would happen if we began to engage in the word of God together? Not because we have to attend some community group or have to sit through my boring sermons for 25, 30 minutes, maybe sometimes a little more. But we did it together just because of our love for each other and love for the word of God. What would happen if we moved to share our resources like we see in this early church? Later we see in chapter 4 it says they sold their land and their homes and their possessions to give to whatever the need was. What would happen if we did that? What would happen if we moved from a stirring to rethinking, to action, to inviting others to join this. And one of the brilliant things we see within the book of Acts is this genuine beloved community gathered not only just to spend time together, but they gathered to grow in Christ together. They gathered to worship together. They gathered to minister to the needs around them. And what began to happen was something absolutely beautiful. Does anybody remember a website called sixdegrees.com? No hands, nobody? Oh, wow, okay. All right, I'm a loser. Uh, it was actually the very first social media website, the very first. And the basic concept was to connect to people on social circles on this phenomenon called the World Wide Web. And this happened in 1997. And it was the beginning of things to come because then came this thing called AOL Instant Messenger, Friendster, and MySpace, all the way paving for this thing that would break ground in 2004 from a dorm room called Facebook. And when Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook, the idea was that it was connecting college students only. In fact, you had to have a college email address to get onto Facebook. And at the age of 20 years old, Zuckerberg was able to create something that changed the way that we use the internet as we know it. It changed the way that we thought about private versus public. At age 20, Zuckerberg collided the world with Facebook, and it's never been the same. And the vision of this idea of the Facebook, which was originally called the Facebook and changed to Facebook, uh, was this constant connectivity with all its users. And so it's changed the way that we connect with each other. It's changed the way that we express our thoughts and our opinions. It's changed the way that we even read news in the world. Um, there's 1.6 billion people that interact with Facebook on a daily basis. Um, and it says that the average Facebook user connects with Facebook 110 different ways in a given day. So that's commenting, that's liking, that's checking your news feed, that's getting updates. Um, 63% of adults said they get news first through Facebook before they get news from another news outlet. It's fascinating when you really think about it. And all this began for this idea of 2030-somethings being able to connect online. Now, this other thing happened on Facebook. There was this mass exodus from Facebook because Facebook was no longer cool when your parents started friending you. Like, no offense to, like, parents in the crowd, but, like, it's not cool anymore when your parents start liking and commenting and things. And so what began to happen what, is all these spinoffs began to happen. 
Things like uh, Twitter and Tumblr, Instagram, Snapchat, LinkedIn, Pinterest, The Vine, Google+, all these things begin to create out of this simple thing of creating a profile and connecting with people online. It's changed the world forever. Now I want you to take that concept of, of changing the world forever by creating community and imagine what would happen if the church genuinely pursued community together. 1.6 billion people on Facebook can you consider what happened if the church took up genuine community and began to live it out together? Because what we begin to see in the book of Acts is you see this rapid growth and development happen. It says that the Lord added to their number daily those being saved. Again and again, this happens within the book of Acts. And you begin with this small group of 12, this greater community of people that were following Jesus, and it begins to multiply to the point at the end of Acts, there is a number in the church of tens of thousands of people spread beyond just Jerusalem into Asia. Asia Minor, the church is growing rapidly. And I don't think Luke is telling us these numbers as a, like as a point for us to view as success. Like the more numbers you have, the more church is successful. What Luke is trying to convey is that when people were living out the gospel message in their lives, the church grew. People came to Christ. What would happen if we began to build genuine community together? Um, I want to tell you something, and I want you to uh, brace yourself for this. Um, the Children's Place retailer is going to be closing about 200 stores uh, in this next year. I know that news is going to shock uh, some of you. They're going to join the likes of Walgreens and Office Depot and Barnes & Noble and Sports Authority that are literally closing hundreds of stores in this coming year. And when I heard this news, it got me rethinking about some of the stores of my childhood that closed. You, you guys remember the store Service Merchandise? It was like the first like high-end retailer where like you didn't actually handle the product, they took it for you. Anybody remember KB Toys? Of course, we're not far, far removed from Circuit City and Borders Books. Anybody remember when we actually had music stores, Sam Goody, movie stores, Blockbuster, and Hollywood Video? And the sad thing is about all these stores closing, while it impacted the employees, it didn't really impact the communities they were a part of. Why? Well, because they were replaced with something better, a, a nuanced version of itself. So service merchandise and KB toys were replaced with bigger and better things like Best Buy and Target and Toys R Us. The music stores were replaced with iTunes, then eventually you have Pandora and then Amazon Prime Music. The blockbuster and video stores were replaced with Redbox, Netflix, and now live streaming everything online. And then Amazon pretty much replaces everything. Now these other stores like Walmart and Target are trying to compete with this tremendous shift online. Why am I saying all this? Because one of the things I think the church should consider is if we closed our doors to matter tomorrow would it matter if we closed our doors tomorrow would it matter if mosaic was not here tomorrow would it matter to you would it matter to me would it matter to the clayton community if mosaic was gone tomorrow would it matter and if we can even in the slightest way answer the question, no, it wouldn't matter, then we need to reconsider why we do what we do and how and what we do what we do. The great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says this, the church exists for two primary closely related purposes, to worship God 
and to work in God's kingdom in the world. The church also exists for a third purpose, which serves the other two, to encourage one another, to build one another up in faith, to pray and to live with one another, to learn from one another and teach one another, to set another example for us to follow, to challenge us to take up this urgent platform and cause of Christ. This is all part of this loosely affiliated thing called community. Mosaic, you and I have to decide matter in our lives? Does this community matter to us? Will it matter to this greater Clayton community? And if so, how can we make an even more tremendous impact in the world around us? For the last remaining months in this year-long series throughout the scripture, we're going to learn the inner dynamics of this genuine community, this thing called the church, as we take a look at the letters of Paul and James and John and the other books within scripture. But may we consider today, if Mosaic was gone tomorrow, Would it matter to you, to me, or to Clayton?